This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast on the mitral clip as a treatment of the leaky mitral valve. With me today is uh, Mustafa Ahmed, who's director of the Interventional and Structural Program at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And uh, believe me, he has a lot of experience on the mitral clip. We know that there is an unmet need for patients with mitral regurgitation. It is estimated approximately 2 million people have severe mitral insufficiency just here in the United States. And, and probably about a million of them are at high risk. Uh, we have an annual incidence of over 300,000 patients with a new onset of mitral insufficiency that is severe. And if you look at the mitral valve surgery, only 55,000 uh, surgeries are performed in the United States. That's approximately 3% of all of the patient population with mitral insufficiency. In 2019, we had about 10,000 clips uh, uh, performed. So the mitral clip or the endovascular repair of the mitral valve or using the edge-to-edge -edge technique is relatively new and, um, and very user-friendly um, for the patients, uh, for, for the centers that are very experienced in performing this type of procedure. And we're looking at a very specialized structural program. And Dr. Ahmed is head of one of those programs. And so, Mustafa, if you could tell us a little more about what is the mitral clip and um, how does it actually work, you know, on the mitral valve and, and how do you perform those procedures? So the mitral clip is a technology for treating a leaky mitral valve without having to undergo surgery. And really, you know, why was this developed? This was developed because... Although many patients can undergo surgery, there is a particularly high risk group of patients who you know, may not be suited to have open techniques. Even, even when surgery is minimally invasive, it still makes you, it still is a lot for patients to undergo. And so the development of what we call percutaneous therapies, which means you know, we go through the leg, we, we don't do an incision, we don't put patients on the heart-lung machine, those are the kind of therapies that have been developed, which have seen the new age uh, of, of treatment occur. And the mitral clip was the first major advancement in the treatment of a leaky mitral valve, which involves going through a vein in the leg and putting on a clip onto the valve to allow it to come back together. So the, there's two kind of sides to the valve, the anterior and the posterior side. And the clip attaches, you know, one part of it to the anterior, one part to the posterior. And it's almost like a clothespin. By the time it comes together, it keeps both the anterior and posterior leaflet together and has been found to be a very effective way in suitable patients to minimize the leak, improve quality of life, and the more and more we learn about it, you know, can prevent death, hospitalization from heart failure, and has really turned out to be an important tool in the armamentarium for treatment of mitral regurgitation. So how does it perform? I mean, is this in the cath lab? Um, now it is uh, almost universally performed in cath labs. Some people use hybrid suites, so kind of a little more of a advanced cath lab. Uh, but you know, uh, current cath labs with their imaging platforms, 
uh, can very, very safely perform the mitral valve clip. It's interesting because we perform the mitral clip in the cath lab because we use fluoroscopy, but actually, which means x-rays to guide where we are, but actually the mitral clip is a very imaging-based procedure. And so the most important part, you know, of the of the clip in general is the imaging. There's a procedure known as transesophageal echocardiography where a small camera is put down the throat as part of the procedure, which is why, you know, the overwhelming majority of these patients are asleep when we do it. Um, and those pictures give us crystal clear, particularly since the invention of 3D echocardiography, they give us crystal clear uh, guidance on where to put the clip, how, you know, whether it's been effective or not, evaluating the result and just guiding the whole procedure. So it's, so it's a very imaging-based uh, procedure, but can be done safely in the cath lab. So basically you have this um, little device uh, that basically grasps the leaflets of the mitral valve, the anterior and the posterior, and you're able to basically reduce uh, the amount of mitral insufficiency. What, is that pretty much the goal of that procedure is to reduce the severity of the mitral insufficiency? Yes, you know, well, the goal of any procedure really is to say, how do we improve outcomes for this patient? So the, the real goal to keep in mind, you know, it would be pointless to have a procedure that reduced the leak but made the patient worse or reduced the leak but, you know, didn't lead to any improvement in outcomes. Um, so, you know, what we're looking at is how can we improve quality of life for patients and, if, if possible, extend length of life and reduce hospitalizations, maybe need for medications and other surrogate outcomes like heart function. But really all of this is based around how do we, can we reduce the leak? Of course, uh, valve disease is a very mechanical type issue and the, the reduction of the mitral regurgitation is the center point of the whole therapy. So when we do put a clip on as a proceduralist in that, in that procedure and in that room, what you're aiming to do is to reduce the mitral regurgitation to as low levels as possible. Now, you know, I'll tell you personally when doing a procedure, we want to, if at all possible, and if it makes sense, to try and um, match the surgical type results of no regurgitation left or trace regurgitation left only. The evidence for the mitral clip in most things, you know, most of the studies and registries done shows the benefit really starts to kick in when you can reduce the mitral regurgitation by a few grades. So grade four is really severe, grade zero is non-existent, and grade two is kind of the, you know, the line which, which seems to separate people that have significant and non-significant mitral regurgitation. We know with the clip that any grade of reduction of mitral regurgitation leads to improved outcomes, but really those are seen once you start to get to the two plus and below range. But at no point should people doing this procedure see that as a signal not to get the best result they can. Really, we should be going into those rooms and you know, experienced teams um, really are aiming to get the leak almost down to, to zero if possible. And a lot of experience and uh, you know, um, the kind of team performing the clear path central to have, letting that happen. Right. We're going to try to zero zero in a little bit on the patient population. And if we go through the evolution of the clip, um, 
We know that in 2003, the first patient, um, you know, first patient was done and the mitral valve uh, regurgitation was fixed with the clip. Um, 2011, I mean, it took that long to develop that technology. Uh, 2011, it started becoming uh, a very important pivotal trial, the Everest II um, clinical research trial that started in 2011 and, and was concluded in 2013 and really uh, compared the clip to the mitral valve uh, repair. Can you tell us a little bit, Mustafa, uh, who were the patient, what was the patient population, who did, who did they study, and who was a candidate for that clip uh, versus the repair at that time? Um, you know, most people, when you're giving a lecture on the mitral clip, you start by saying, okay, what we're trying to do here is, you know, who came up with this idea to put a clip on someone? Why, why are we putting a clip? Why are we even trying to do that? Well, how do we even know that would reduce the regurgitation, right? Because it's not it's not similar to how you would do a normal mitral valve repair. Um, and, you know, Dr. Alfieri, a very, very uh, famous surgeon who initially came up with something called the Alfieri stitch, or I believe he initially came out with, with, with what we know as the Alfieri stitch. And that really uh, said, you know, we're going to put some stitches in between the anterior and posterior leaflets, bring them together, and lo and behold, the leak was reduced effectively in many cases. And that was the basis underlying the development of the mitral valve clip. Can we do that same stitch, but can we do it percutaneously through these, you know, catheter-based methods? And a lot of excitement, particularly when in early models it demonstrated, hey, we can reduce this leak significantly, but we can definitely get a clip on there. We can make this recreation of the Alfieri stitch happen. It's not exactly, you know, semantics. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same kind of thought process. And so we know it worked and it had to be proven in trials. And so the first landmark trial, as you mentioned, is the Everest trial. You know, the Everest trial did look at a lot of different patient groups, but really the group that we came out of it with the, knowledge that we can proceed and help people is for the degenerative mitral regurgitation groups. That means those people where the valve itself and processes such as mitral valve prolapse, leaflet thickening, and not just a bad heart leading to a bad valve, but really a bad heart valve itself as a mainstay in what we know as primary mitral regurgitation, as opposed to the different one, which is functional mitral regurgitation. So the Everest, and I will tell you, the more you look back at Everest and see that that trial got through, the more incredible. Because when we do clip today, it is night and day. It is like driving a car of the, you know, that's made in 2020 versus driving in on a car and that's made in you know, 1950. I mean, the clip, believe it or not, the clip technology itself hasn't changed as much. But the imaging, what we know, the understanding, the operator experience and the volume. So it's night and day what we have now. I have almost no doubt at all. If we went back and did the Everest trial now with what we know, it would just be so overwhelmingly different in terms of the results achieved. But the fact that that trial still went well, despite a, a group of operators who you know, did not have the experience that we have now, just is, is an astonishing thing. Just historically looking at trials, the, you know, the pristine 3D images we have now were just grainy 2D images. And it's a, it was a great effort. But we came out of that knowing that when you take a high risk population and you compare them to surgery, and I'm not talking about the early failures. There's always some early failures uh, back then that would need surgery. But when you take out those people, particularly that you had a successful clip result, you know, it was not inferior to surgery 
over the long-term follow-up or the intermediate-term follow-up. And we've learned since then the long-term follow-up. And it did provide a way of taking the sickest and, you know, the ill patients, the ones that we really didn't want to operate on. We now had the beginnings of evidence that the mitral clip can reduce the leak, the patient can do well over the long term, and we can avoid, you know, the brutality of having to do a surgery in someone that's really not a good surgical candidate. And that's where it was kind of kind of born. And that, that was a landmark trial, the Everest Everest too. It was interesting to me that um, there was no change, no difference in mortality, you know, between the CLIP group and, and the group that had surgery. Of course, you know, there was a better resolution of the mitral insufficiency or mitral regurgitation with surgery. Um, but it seems like, <clears throat> particularly in the, in the first year after the CLIP, there appears to be some increasing problem with hospitalization and having to do uh, some redo surgery or more procedures. But if you look after a year, there's really, there was no difference in terms of heart failure, hospitalization, or having to do another surgery because of the mitral regurgitation. Yeah. So pretty, pretty incredible. So the FDA obviously approves the trial in 2013. And also what is interesting to me is that the, there was about a quarter of the patient, 25% of the patient that had secondary mitral regurgitation in that group of um, Everest II. Uh, but that led to obviously a very important trial, the COAP trial, uh, presented in 2018 by Greg Stone. And uh, to be honest with you, I've never seen this in a uh, in a national meeting of cardiology, having a standing ovation when he presented the results because it was quite remarkable. Um, it took six it took six years, you know, to conduct the COAP trial in patients with secondary mitral regurgitation. Uh, Mustafa, do you want to tell us a little bit more about who were these patients um, uh, with secondary mitral regurgitation that were entering the COAP trial, and what were some of the results? Yeah, as you said, the COAP trial, um, a great effort, a strikingly positive trial in terms of its outcomes, a trial that was very, very difficult to enroll in. Um, mainly because the entry criteria was stringent. And that was probably very important because it then allowed us to recognize this could be a therapy for people with secondary or what is known as functional mitral regurgitation. So this is different to primary. Secondary means the heart is bad. These people have had insults to their heart that have made it worse over time. And that has led to the valve becoming deformed or distorted, leading to the leak itself. So now we needed to show evidence that we could help that group. It's, it's a much larger group of patients. It's a group of patients that we as busy clinical doctors come across routinely and for years have been looking for a treatment for them, but also to start the beginnings of answering the debate, should we treat the heart, should we treat the valve, should we treat both? And so this trial came out, which took years, again, because the, the entry criteria were very stringent. And this showed that use of the mitral clip in that functional population that had been allowed to enter the trial because they had been treated with every possible medicine that they could take that would help the heart to heal. Those patients that had what we call a non-synchronized heart had the pacemakers to make them synchronized again. They had been seen by heart failure specialists and their volume of fluid status optimized because we all know that that can you know, definitely strongly impact 
the degree of mitral regurgitation. So we've really gone out of our way to do what we can to treat everything but the valve in that situation. And still, the valve is really leaky, leading to symptoms of heart failure, hospitalization, death, and, and, and other things that the clip came along and had just, again, an astounding, I was there actually, it was an astoundingly positive, straight, very strange, right? How everyone suddenly started clapping and standing up. I've never seen that. But I think, I think everyone's just been waiting for so long to see what this, what this happened. And also probably because a bunch of interventionists were sitting around thinking, oh gosh, there you go, we get, we're about to get a green light to go and, you know, use this therapy to, to help people. And so... Let's remember, it was right after the release of the uh, mitral FR, the European, European trial, that didn't show any difference. Uh, of course, that, that was an immediate dampener on the you know, yeah. fireworks that went off. But, but really, that trial was a, you know, a, a randomized, controlled, multi-center trial um, that did demonstrate, with a good level of evidence, for, you know, as far as a single trial can be, that the mitra clip could really impact the lives, uh, survival and quality of life of people with uh, functional mitral regurgitation. So these were, in the COAP trial, these were secondary uh, mitral regurgitation uh, with moderately to severe MR, um, whether they had a cardiomyopathy that was ischemic or non-ischemic, but their ejection fraction was between 20 and 50%, but a lot of them, it was mostly, um, obviously these were patients that failed medical therapy. Granted, remember this was years ago, nobody was on Entresto. So we didn't really have quite the optimal medical therapy, but we had what they had in, at that time. Uh, but it was pretty pretty amazing that all cause mortality uh, were reduced in the group of the CLIP and medical therapy it was 29% versus 46% you know, in the medical therapy group. Substanti substantially improved quality of life and uh, over over a third of them, 36% versus only in 17% in the medical group. So, <clears throat> so we have our patient population, you know, patient for the CLIP that are either, you know, primary um, mitral regurgitation uh, that are at high risk for surgery. It seems like the result is as good as the surgery. We have also even some patients with secondary mitral regurgitation when the heart is sick. But when you have the heart is still not that sick, that you don't have these huge dilated, dilated uh, ventricle, but you have that very severe MR. I think these seems to be, you know, the candidate for um, the mitral clip. And it's really nice to see yeah, the evolution and how much uh, the clip has been used. If you compare 2013, when the FDA um, you know, approved the clip, there was 99 centers and 1,000 clips performed. In 2019, last year, uh, almost 400 centers are performing mitral clips for a total of patient over 10,000 patients. So tell us, uh, in, in your mind, in your center, uh, who is the ideal candidate for the mitral clip? If you, if you kind of look at not only the patient, uh, patient population that we discussed, but also if you look at the mitral valve itself, you know, what makes you believe that this is, would be a good candidate for a clip? Well, you know, just to back, kind of backtrack from what we talked about before, you know, why was everyone so extraordinarily excited? about the results of that trial, because the number needed to treat, right? So the number needed to treat is a something we use in trials. Many medications that we use in, in, in heart disease 
the number needed to treat may be 50 to, to save one life or to prevent one event. When in this trial, the number needed to treat was literally just a few. That's really what you're saying is you treat just a few patients and you'll be able to reduce mortality, um, hospitalizations. And I think that was it. You know, the Kaplan-Meier curves, the, these curves which we look at, which we're separating, there was such an amazing divergence and the difference in those curves that was just so striking. And I think that led to a lot of the excitement. I will tell you about valvular heart disease. Now, I started looking back at valvular heart disease, gosh, years ago. One of the first things I ever had to do was an extensive review on the topic. It's a funny story because when I got to the United States, my mentor back then was like, oh, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to get you involved in the project. He's like, you've got two weeks to do it. And I was like, that's great. I, there's two weeks. What he didn't tell me is it was like a hundred page uh, booklet, which needed to be done, which is an extensive review article. And in those hundred pages, one thing I did learn is the level of evidence, level of class one and class two evidence in valvular heart disease, it was minimal we really had a bunch of guidelines that really were not informed by evidence. And then TAVA came along with aortic valve disease and demonstrated, you know, we can put these TAVA valves in and, and striking uh, improvement in, in uh, quality and, uh, uh, and mortality, you know. But then MitraClip came along. And again, it was just this advancement of treatment of valvular heart disease. And that's another reason why everyone was just astonishingly excited it's bringing valve disease into the 21st century. And that, that's what it was doing. Uh, just, just the trial alone, not to talk about the results or how we should extrapolation, but just the fact it was pulled off and the effort was being made. That's what made that trial such a big deal. And so when we talk about who do we do as our usual patient? So the big word, the most respected word is heart team approach. So no patient should in this day and age be going to be evaluated for just a clip or a valvular heart therapy. When a patient comes to see us in our valve center and with mitral disease, our first thought is not, oh yes, let's do a mitral because they've been sent for a mitral The first thought is how do we accurately diagnose, quantify, and understand the mechanisms of this disease? And the mitral valve is extraordinarily complex. So the first part of the evaluation is you want to be able to bring uh, your patient and say, okay, this is severe MR as determined both quantitatively and qualitatively, which means we've used both routine and more nuanced mechanisms to do that. And that may involve transesophageal echocardiography, normal echocardiography, three-dimensional uh, echocardiography, magnetic resonance imaging, and even heart catheterization to really understand and say to ourselves, this is severe or non-severe disease in nature. Now, after that comes mechanism, and a lot of that is informed by, you know, these imaging. Is this primary? Is this secondary? Is this valve repairable? Is it not repairable? Is it replaceable? Is it not replaceable? Is it even doable by percutaneous methods? Which means how much calcium is in the valve? What does the leaflets look like? If you're going to do a clip, you know, you look at... Um, an image, you know, we've done, we've done so many now, you can kind of look at an image and know, but it's not that you know it, it's, you know through, through the experience that is the posterior leaflet long enough, short enough, is there calcium, can you grasp that, what's the subvalvular structures like, how wide is the mitral regurgitation, are you going to leave the patient with a, you know, it goes, oh, it's tight valve or not, and it goes on and on and on. The biggest mistake I see happening is um, people treating people that genuinely don't have severe disease, and so 
when you are evaluating their images that really know what they are doing and are independent of bias used to confirm the presence or absence of that disease. And it may be by you, it's the other way around as well, because you may have people with not so severe disease that is dynamic, which means once they start to become active, the symptoms become much worse because the leak comes when the patient is put under stress. So first we do that. And then you get with your heart team. So you, you've got mitral regurgitation. There's 10 options should be on the table, not one. Again, the mistake is to say, oh yeah, what a great candidate for mitral valve clip. So it should be, can this patient go open surgery? Can they undergo mini, minimally invasive surgery? Can they undergo robotic surgery? Should they have a mitral valve edge-to-edge repair with something like the mitral, mitral clip? Should they have a, a mitral valve replacement? Should they be considered for new trials or new technologies coming in? And a whole... Unless you have all those options present, you're not doing service to that patient because then we're doing a one-size-fits-all approach. But there's nothing more different than a one-size-fits-all approach in the nuanced and contemporary management of mitral valve disease. And so that takes a good imager, a really good surgeon who, who can repair a valve that needs repairing because what is done a lot is valves are replaced when they should be repaired. And a team, a percutaneous or structural team that's very fluid in the percutaneous options and is willing to send their patient where they need to be sent, whether it's you do the clip yourself or you send that somewhere for a trial or you send it to the surgeon because it should be repaired. And until those competing interests are removed, you know, there's always going to be people that are under disservice when going to valve centers. So, so a, a good contemporary valve center has all of the above working fluidly together taking a patient and navigating them to what is the best option for them. Is the risk high? Is the risk low? Uh, you know, a simple uh, classic conversations. Let me, let me just take a few patients from the last week. So there'll be one patient where, you know, I think uh, the surgeon center. So this is too high risk. Do you think you can clip it? And I would say, no, I don't think a clip can go on there because there's calcium here. The posterior leaflet is this, the, you know, we'll leave the patient with a tight valve. I don't think we'll get a good result just based on multiple anatomic factors. And then we say, you know what, we're not going to do any of the above. We're going to send our patient for a consideration to be in a trial to see if we can do a non-surgical approach to mitral valve replacement. And then there'll be patients who come in and are sent to, you know, it's always disappointing for patients. They'll come in, then they're 60s, relatively healthy, and they'll say, I really want a mitral valve clip. And I'll be thinking, you know what, we could probably do that really easily, but your best long-term option absolutely is to undergo surgery. And we happen to have a surgeon that can do it minimally invasive robotically. Uh, and that is the best option for them. But then we take the patient with, you know, higher risk that has the anatomic suitability to undergo mitral valve clip that absolutely does have severe mitral regurgitation and has been maximally treated with medicines if required, that is your patient that can then undergo the mitral valve clip. Um, and all you know, even with the clip, once you do the clip, particularly in functional, if you haven't optimized everything, your long-term result is unlikely to be good. We certainly have no evidence that your long-term result can be good. So all those things need to be taken into this heart team approach that brings the, the you know, your ideal patient. But it's still high risk, uh, you know, or or obvious reason not to do a surgical approach in patients with a mitral clip. And sometimes there's patients that the surgeon knows they can't repair the valve. And so I might have a conversation with our surgeon that would say, hey, I think you're going to replace that valve. He'll come back to me and say, you know, um, I really do think you should have a go with the clip. And if that doesn't work, 
then we might consider mitral valve replacement. Again, we would only try that if we genuinely thought we could get a clip result. But that's an example of a heart team that's really putting the patient at the center of the whole conversation. That's very important. You, you mentioned you know, the, the high surgical risk. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on this, Mustafa? What, what do we consider a high surgical risk yeah, that would make you a candidate for a clip? So high surgical risk would be they... Firstly, I'll say eyeball test. I mean, that's really what a lot of this comes down to. You'll see someone and you'll say, there's no way that this is a good idea for this patient to undergo surgery. It may be due to comorbidities, frailty, age, um, you know, multiple previous surgeries, just things that become very apparent. The method of making this more scientific or binary is to use something called an STS or Euroscore. And these are scores that have been developed over time and high scores may pertain to a high surgical risk. So you put a bunch of variables into the risk calculator, age and kidney function and heart function and previous operations and all of this stuff. So many variables go in and calculate a score. And scores, you know, above 6%, 7% may be super high risk and above 2 3 3% may be intermediate risk and, you know, 1% to 2% less than that may be low risk. But that's good because, you know, again, different teams have different experience. Just because a patient's high risk in one center doesn't mean they're high risk in another center. And, you know, the, the, the scoring, the eyeball test, and then there's just other obvious things. Like you might have the best, a good score, but then if your patient's lungs are so bad that they're not going to get off the ventilator after surgery, or the kidneys are so bad that when you go and do surgery, you're going to put them on dialysis straight away you know, or their ability to rehab is so low that they're going to undergo a surgery and they're not going to be able to rehab because they're already in a condition that doesn't allow that. Those are, again, patients which you would say, as a heart team, that patient should not go surgery unless it's the last resort. Let's try and look for an option such as mitral valve clip. So, you know, it's uh, the experience of your team will govern that as well as all the factors we just talked about and the options available. So, yeah, and probably should add in patients with liver disease, um, you should not undergo surgery. Uh, you, from the point of view of the valve itself, I mean, you you mentioned the calcification and and, um, and probably also when the, when the leakage of the valve is central. But you have some patients sometimes that present with very eccentric jets, um, and uh, which you know could be on one side or the other. Uh, does this does this affect you know your um, your treatment or, or your evaluation for a clip? You know, the presence of an eccentric jet alone does not. Um, again, what's causing that? This is where mechanism comes into play. If it's a degenerative uh, portion of the valve causing the eccentric jet, what does that mean? It means that you know the leak's not your classic leak going up. It's kind of going off to the side. Could be underestimated, overestimated. But again, that's where imaging is so important. A good imaging study will tell you this jet is eccentric because of this leaflet being prolapsed or flail or this leaflet being deficient in some way or this leaflet being retracted. And as long as you can pick that up and then look at factors of the leaflets, is it long enough? Is there width? Is there graspability? Is there not? Is there calcium? What's the durability? Looking at all that over you know, the course of an evaluation, we'll be able to tell you doesn't matter what kind of jet, um, um, you know, you possibly can treat it. There's different levels of treatment. Not every clip center is equal um, just because of experience available and experience over time. And so most clip centers can do something which we call, you know, down the middle kind of clip, uh, A2, P2. Those are the two central things, technically easier to get to. Um, and then 
as you kind of get more experience, you go into the commissures, which mean the size of the valve, so the middle or the side, and you start to check. It's a bit more challenging anatomy because the apparatus below the valve is more complex and there's more stuff you can get caught in. So you need to really kind of be wary and uh, cognizant of all that when doing that. But those can be done really well and reproducible. And then there's ones where there's calcium and there's this and there's a, a short leaflet and you you really, you know, even an experienced clip implanter is thinking twice, talking to your patient beforehand and making sure it's the right option or you may have a backup option or not. So so there's, it's, it's, uh, there's different degrees of complexity. But what we have learned over time is, you know, in most cases, even when complex, you can get good clip results, um, you know, with an appropriate experience team. You mentioned the flail. This is obviously when you have one of the cordae attaching the mitral valve to the papillary muscle, or sometimes when you have even the rupture um, papillary muscle, is there a degree of, of flailing that you're not able to clip uh, with the current technology? Um, right now we have the latest iteration of the clip called the G4. And this has allowed something new, which is independent gripper dropping. And I'm getting a little technical here. But really, it has allowed us to go even one more step, wider gaps, co-optation gaps, higher flails. You can you can do that. What I will tell you about flails is, I don't, no, I don't think there's a flail that can't be clipped now in this day and age, again, with an experienced team. But the long-term durability of those, you really need to ensure there's a lot of leaflet grasped. You may need to put two clips, sometimes three on in those cases, and you really want to make sure that valve can't be repaired before you go ahead and do this flip. I think the long-term durability of a hugely excessive flail is to be determined. What we do know is the intermediate-term durability, the ability to get your patient out of trouble uh, there and then, reduce the leak and kind of go forward. Um, even challenging you know, flails with high flail gaps, flail widths, um, and flail kind of uh, you know, the whole... Uh, complexity of the valve what we call valves, or just lots of other prolapsing segments even those can be done with with decent results now but that that's got to go into your thought process i mean at no point should you be trying just to do that patient because you can get a clip on it you should try and if you if your surgeon says i think i can do that pretty pretty straightforward there, there shouldn't be a conversation saying well i can get a clip on there because this, the surgical result is going to last a long time Whereas the clip result may last a long time, but you want to save it for the times when it's the appropriate thing to do in that setting. Talking about this, there is this ongoing study, which we're about to be a part of, called a Repair MR. And the Repair MR study is now looking at this in a much lower risk population. And it's going to be a very interesting study because there's all those patient people that see these good results in the higher risk. And they look at the aortic valve space and say, well, we took that from higher risk to the medium risk to lower risk and did that fine. Why can the clip not be done in suitable cases in people with a intermediate or lower risk? And so that is now ongoing. That will be several years in the making. We're starting the enrollment of that now in the United States. Um, and that will tell us the answer to your question. But I really don't think we'll have the real answer to that question for a long time until we have the longer term follow-up. Are there patients uh, that are uh, where a clip is contraindicated? Yes. Um, prohibited in patients with extreme calcification, high gradients to start with, which means 
you could make the valve too tight for mitral stenosis in patients with pre-existing mitral stenosis, in patients with active infection endocarditis on the valve, in patients where the mechanism is actually something different, such as leaflet perforation or damage from something before. So yes, there are many cases in which you would not want to use it. Um, you know, extreme calcification, deficient leaflets that are less than a few millimeters big and can't be grasped. So those are cases where, you know, it's only going to turn out one way. And it's really important that this pre-screening process um, confidently identifies those patients and avoids doing them. I think we've got a pretty good idea now who's a candidate, you know, for the CLIP. Um, you mentioned some of the benefits. Um, could you maybe, uh, let's look at the risk versus the benefit, you know, performing a CLIP. What kind of benefits do you get? What are the risks, you know, that the patient can encounter with this procedure? Yes. Um, as in any procedure in uh, medicine, the risks um, need to be discussed carefully, but the benefit needs to outweigh any risk. Um, there's short-term risks and there's long-term benefits and, and vice versa. And the clip for all intents and purposes, we're not stopping the heart. We're going through the vein and going across. The risks that can happen are damage to the blood vessels on the way in, which is as low as very low few percent. Damage to the heart itself while trying to get across the heart in a process called a transeptal puncture. But I will tell you, these are so common now and training so advanced now in many programs that the transeptal puncture now is no longer a rate-limiting step in doing the clip, and the complication rate associated with that is much less, simply because structural heart specialists now know what they're doing, that you shouldn't fear a transeptal now as a, in the contemporary um, mitral valve uh, performing, it, performing the clip. Uh, and then, the, you know, the risks really are, are you going to make the valve worse? Are you going to walk in and the leak be three and leave with a leak of four? Are you going to tear some of the leaflet out? Are you going to leave a clip and it do no good and it kind of fly off? And those are the things that you want to look for. But if you do a good screening process, all those should have been identified before and, and those, um, those taken into account. Um, so the risk itself is low, very low few percent for you know, leaving the hospital and doing well. Your risk, of course, is always dependent on what's going into the procedure. If you take someone from home, admit them to the hospital for a one-day procedure and like our patients all go home you know within 24 hours most of them the risk is low and they should come back and do and and, and the results should be durable and they should do fine now if you get a patient that is transferred to you on a ventilator in shock on multiple drips even if the mechanism is degenerative the risk in that case is much much higher but then the risk of death is almost 100 so what do the patients stand to gain from a mitral clip now is improved quality of life, decreased heart failure symptoms, increased energy, less fatigue, improvement in shortness of breath and such. And then also a potential improvement in, you know, mortality, which means less risk of dying over the next few year period, which is very important also. So quality of life, length of life, and uh, treatment of heart failure symptoms really is the, is the benefits that patients will get. Again, that's why it's so important not just to clip what is sent to you with MR. Make sure it's severe. Make sure it's driving the symptoms. Really be confident in that. Otherwise, you're just doing a procedure with some risk that's going to have no benefit. And even if you complete the procedure, well done. You know, the clip is on, but the patient won't feel better. And so all that needs to be strongly assessed. In, in our center, out of every 
10 patients that are sent with mitral regurgitation, I would tell you maybe two to three, maybe four might get a therapy. The rest will be treated medically. And many of those that are treated medically would not need treatment at all because the leak was not the bad in the first place. So you have, you have some patients that will need just one clip. Uh, some patients may need more than one clip. Um, at the end of the procedure, what are, um, you try to aim for you know, zero to very, very mild uh, leakage of the valve. Um, and what else are you looking in, in your parameters that tell you, uh, well, maybe I need another clip in this, in this case, or, or I'm happy with the results? What do you look at? Um, if you can um, do the case with one clip and get a great result, that may be ideal. But one to two clips in most cases is what's most common. Um, sometimes there's an advantage of the second clip, which is stabilization of the first clip, potential durability, reduction, further reductions in mitral regurgitation. And as long as you can put that on without, without increasing the chance of a tight valve, which is being monitored throughout the whole procedure, there, you know, it's better, I would say, if you have mitral regurgitation and you got it down from four plus to two plus with the first clip, I wouldn't be happy with that. I would want to put another one on to get it down to zero to one. But, of course, make sure that the first clip was put on in the best way. You know, I often see the first clip being put on and left there rather than it being moved and checked and appropriate. And, uh, you know, often that first clip can be moved to actually minimize the mitral vegetation. But if you put that on and as a team in the room, you've decided that there's still leak and you still like to treat it, it can be done safely. There's, you shouldn't think twice. Put that second clip on, do it, get the result, great. You know, the most I've put on is probably five. Um, and those are for the very, very, very large ventricles. And you're essentially trying to bring the, you know, the heart closer together in terms of size. And so one to two clips is definitely most common. There's absolutely nothing wrong with putting the second clip on to reduce the MR further if needed. It's not, it's not like it's particularly more risky, uh, but it could be a better result if it's, if it's uh, you know, done in the right situation. Um, and then, you know, the, the more extreme cases might require several, several clips over time uh, to be put on. And in some occasion, we'll, again, rarely, not all the time, but we'll say, you know what, I'll put this one or two on. I don't want to put the third one on now. I want to see how this patient does because the third one may have some anatomic risk or affect the first two. Let's send the patient home, see how they're doing. Um, an integrated assessment using the pressures inside the heart, the color assessment and, and all that. Um, and then most of those people are doing absolutely fine when you bring them back to follow-up and occasionally you bring someone back and put a third one on and it gets even less and they do even better. Again, not, not common, but you get to fight another day and do fine rather than trying to be trying to do something uh, you know, that's dangerous or doesn't make sense in the first instance. Obviously, the more clips you have, um, you're trying to, you know, bring those leaflets together to prevent, you know, the leakage, but you're also narrowing the valve and, and the opening, uh, you know, across that valve. Um, and um, I mean, it's, it's a balance, you know, what kind of uh, pressure gradient are you happy with after your procedure? It is. Um, you definitely don't want to trade, you know, no stenosis, which is stenosis means tight valve. So no stenosis for severe stenosis. And if you are doing that, there's a number of maneuvers that can be used inside the room, such as speeding up the heart rate to see how that, that goes. But there are a number of technical um, things you learn over time to reduce that. You know, I'll tell you about a case uh, we had this last year. 
um, where the normal gradient is and one or two. And when we start to get to five, we start to say, okay, we're getting there now. And we definitely don't want to get to seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, you know. So this was absolutely terrible leak in a patient that had had a previous surgery and had a ring on the valve. And everywhere we put the clip in this patient, we're getting beautiful grasps. And so it was, it was, it was soul destroying. So we're getting these great grasps, reducing the leak from torrential to nothing. But we'd get gradients of 15. 16, 17, and you know you cannot leave it. You're also looking at a patient which cannot have surgery because they're so high risk and you're kind of stuck and they're not a candidate for any of the contemporary uh, mitral valve implant trials. So, you know, on the probably the ninth or 10th movement of that clip, we finally found one which got the gradient down to seven. And again, we're being very careful with all this. And then what we did is slowly open the clip so not fully closed, but we opened it to around a 30 degree angle, which is allowed, and you can still, and the gradient went down to five. And so it was a great, you know, it's a great case of just, you know, simple maneuvers, maybe a little bit more advanced, but really careful working with your imaging team, working, understanding the technical components of the clip well, and being comfortable to have a lot of tissue in there and just open it a tiny bit. And that angle, and you know, so we, we left, we came in with a torrential leak and an impossible case but left with a, you know, one to two plus leak. It wasn't zero, it was one to two plus. It was zero when we had the clip closed. That was the worst thing. But the gradient, which was 17, which you can't live with, you know, was down to five and the patient's doing great on follow-up. And so, you know, those are those are the kind of decision. And I can tell you, there's a lot of great discussion that happens in the room. That's why you want the best imager you can have in there, the best people uh, in terms of understanding of this on the clip, anesthesiology that are helping with the kind of assessment and the pharmacological assessment of that. And then just the experience to know what to get away with. That's not a clip I would have wanted to do early on in my uh, career with the clip, but it shows that even in the most complex of situations, you still can do complex clips, get a good result, when, particularly when you don't have another option. I think if we look at the, um, the STS and, and all the gathering of all the clips being perform, they were looking at a patient population of about 3,000 patients. Um, everybody, I mean, they, there was like four plus MR or very, very severe mitral regurgitation. And after the clip, about 60% had just um, zero mitral insufficiency to one plus or so very, very mild. And 93% had uh, two plus MR or less um, with success rate of 92% overall. Um, patients going home, you know, uh, 86% going home within two days and very low mortality, you know, less than 3%. And these are sick patients that are high surgical risk. So, you know, overall, it's very good. And I think long-term, I think it's going to lead to really uh, remodeling of the heart. And you see these these volumes that actually become, the heart size becomes smaller, you know, as you fix those leaks uh, and the heart function improves. So, definitely a lot of benefits we yeah. talked about we talked about the risk we talked about the uh, uh, the benefit <clears throat> let's see if i'm a patient now that uh, you know I, I was referred to you i've had all this investigation i've had you know my echo i may have had a stress test i had my mri my ct so everything is ready and it's finally decided the heart team has decided um, a clip procedure is the right way to proceed uh, and being admitted next week, next Tuesday, what should I expect as a patient? Um, and um, how long does the procedure take? Looks like I'm going to go home possibly within 24 hours, maybe 48 at most. What should we want the, 
COVID era answer or the non-COVID era answer? Well, let's say non-COVID. <laughs> okay. So, you know, again, the COVID era just adds another half a day before where you get the tests and nothing else. And so, you know, you'll let's say you're going for the clip, you'll be scheduled. You'll come in that morning um, at whatever time is designated. Um, and let's say you're having a morning procedure. You'll meet the anesthesiologist again if you've not met them already. And you'll go to sleep and you'll be taken to the room. So the room will be prepped. The area is through the femoral vein where we go through most of the time. And that will be a prepped. But when I say that, I mean the cleaning um, and sterile uh, chemicals are put on there to, to make it sterile. So you can't get infection from that to minimize infection as much as possible. At the same time, you'll be being given medications by the anesthesiologist to put you to sleep. Um, a breathing tube will be put in. And, you know, this is good because you feel no discomfort at that point. And so then the procedure, you know, getting ready for the procedure, that whole process takes about 30 minutes. And then you'll, then you'll get a message saying the patient is draped and you'll go in, but your imaging specialist would have already been in there obtaining images. And you'll spend a few minutes re-reviewing the images, making sure everything is as advertised, making sure you're confident to go ahead and, and uh, just a third layer of checking after all the pre-procedural checks that have been done before. So then you go through the groin, tiny needle called a micropuncture needle used to introduce a wire. And you'll, it's called getting access. And that will get you into the femoral vein through which we are going to go up to the heart. A wire will be passed through your leg, up through the body, into the heart chamber. And then we'll go from the right chamber to the left chamber in a process called a transeptal puncture, which is guided by the echocardiogram. And ultimately, we'll put this thing in, this tube called a, a guide or a delivery system, uh, into the left chamber, which is where the mitral valve is. And through that, we'll put the clip. The clip process can take anywhere from, you know, for a very experienced team in a straightforward case, 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, faster if you can. But again, you know, the goal is not to do this as fast as possible, it's to do a good job. And in the most challenging and extreme of cases, several hours in the room. But then when the procedure is complete, assuming all has gone well, um, the clip tubes and everything are taken out and we use a little suture down in the leg just to tie that together. And the patient is woken up and the breathing tube taken out in the room in almost all elective cases, so all cases coming from home. The patient is starting to wake up in the room and will we'll be awake by the time they're in a few minutes, you know, minutes later when they get back to the holding area. The patient will then go to the floor. So let's say you came in at 7 a.m. and your procedure is done by 10 a.m. You know, uh, after prep and everything being ready, you'll go to the floor and by 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock, you'll be on the floor. Which is an outpatient, which is a room on the floor of the hospital, not an intensive care unit. We don't do that anymore. Everyone did that at the beginning because we still felt this was, you know, heavy-handed procedure. But now, very, very rare to send a patient to an intensive care unit, particularly when they are extubated, which means the tube can come out. So then, the patient can get up after a few hours, sit in the chair, walk around. They've still got that little suture in their leg, which we usually take out the next morning, and. You know, the next frontier will be, can we send patients home the same day? Um, this will have to be studied. I mean, people, we've done it, and, you know, cases that are absolutely where, where it's forced. But, we, you know, as of this minute, we still feel there may be an advantage to watching overnight. The next morning, we get an echocardiogram. First thing in the morning, 7, 8 o'clock, someone will come across the room. We're looking for no effusion around the heart and stuff like that, no, no evidence of damage. But we want to make sure the clip is stable, the clip looks good, the leak is still reduced. 
And then you say, you know, you go and you pre-COVID used to shake your patient's hand, right? Post-COVID, you look at your patient and say, hey, this is great. The clip looks uh, in great positioning. The leak's all the way down. And often they'll tell you they feel a lot better already. They'll be up and about already. And you sign the paperwork and send them home. And that's about a 24-hour process. They'll come back to you at one week. Um, but nowadays, we just do a televisit. And people, you'll just make sure everyone's doing okay, no issues. And then, then you'll say, you know, really go for it. Do what you want at this point. No limitations at all. And then at one month, uh, we'll check the clip, the valve, the heart, make sure everything's okay. You know, And then medication adjustments as required and other answering of questions that patients have. Um, it's good practice for patients after procedures such as the mitral valve clip to go to cardiac rehab just to get more you know, supervised exercise uh, conditioning for many of the older, frailer patients and just the confidence to get back and do what they want to do. But the reality about the clip is you know, the day after the clip, you should be able to do almost all you want to do because it's a, it's such a low profile. If it all goes well, you know, stress on the body, you're not stopping the heart, you're not stopping all this stuff. And so you should be able to go forward and have a very, very fast recovery. One of the very attractive features of the major clip. And actually the risk of complication requiring emergency surgery is very low. Probably, is it about uh, less than a percent or two? Or? Yes. I mean, you know, uh, we do very challenging cases and ones that are higher risk. And despite that, the risk of having to go to emergent surgery is very low. I mean, you never want to go from the clip room to the operating room, ideally. I mean, even if there is some complication like that, the ideal situation is a stabilizing period, discharge and come back for that. If you have to go for true emergent surgery, which means there's been an immediate complication, that's why you want a good heart team with excellent surgeons that can that can get people out of trouble when that happens. But the risk is very, very low. I would believe that one, one, one to 2% uh, figure. So results are very good acutely. Um, what about long-term results? I mean, it, it seems like uh, some of the clips that were placed for secondary mitral regurgitation patients that had, you know, sicker hearts uh, had maybe a little bit more procedure. Uh, within that first year, but it seems like after that, it was really good. Um, so what what kind of long-term results do we have? And if we do have, you know, an increase or, or a problem with the mitral regurgitation, the leakage becoming more severe, can you go ahead and put another clip in uh, six months or a year later? Um, you absolutely can go back in and put other clips in many situations, not if the leak is to do with the first clip. So sometimes for technical purposes, the first clip being placed really um, makes it difficult to put a second one on because you can put a second one on, but it won't be taking care of the mechanism, which will be related to that first one. So those are situations um, which are unfortunate, but um, and hopefully uh, for the most place avoidable. But you can, for example, you put a clip here in the middle and a little leak to the right of it comes on. You can go in and put a clip to the right of it, and that can, as long as the valve's not too tight and the patient's an appropriate candidate, you can go and put a second one on to good effect. And, and it can be done with the same very low risk and, and, and can get good results. But when you talk about how durable is this, we do have data from many registries now coming out of Europe and the United States to demonstrate that, the, you know, all the way up to the five-year point, you can have good durable results. They don't get tighter over time. The leak doesn't go outside that two plus range to severe more. And the more data we get out, the more data there is to suggest that these are durable things over time that can last the length, you know, in terms of the 
over the long term. You do worry a little bit with the explosion of MitraClip and MitraClip centers. Remember, when we do these trials, we're choosing sites that have done a lot, that are very proficient in what they're doing and that have expert teams in there. When you suddenly exponentially grow that, and there's the whole there's a whole debate going on right now with the CMS, and it's, the, it's actually the end of the open comments period just recently, where people are debating this: is what what where should this be done? How should this be done? Who should do it? You know, should it be someone just that had adequate training, or should it just be in a centre that does a lot of these and and seem well positioned to do those going forward with a lot of backup? And if you if you restrict it too much, will you be denying people in certain places therapy? But if you don't restrict it enough. Will you be worsening the results and diluting the results over time and putting people in more danger? No easy answer to this. It's a, it's a, you know, often patients can help inform their own decision and uh, local teams will, uh, you know, have their decisions. But this is this is everything in medicine, uh, you know, as it is. But, um, you know, depending on it, registries are important over time, and hopefully, hopefully, there's data that continues to be collected in registries to monitor this over the long term and ensure that the results stay good over time. Certainly in the structural and, and in the surgical world, um, number of procedures does matter. I mean, it, you know, you want to go to a center that is very proficient in these uh, procedures and, and do a lot of very experience with it and have a large patient referral. And, and um, I remember when we were back at, uh, you know, a few years ago where you had uh, uh, you had done your hundredth, you know, clip, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you know since you uh, you're at UAB, your center is putting you know a lot of clips and and uh, appropriately because you know you have an incredible uh, team there. The heart team approach has been um, implemented very well at your center. Uh, what's the future for uh, the clips, Mustafa? You already mentioned that you have this the new clip uh, design, the G uh, the G4 NT and and G4XT, which allows maybe to grab a little bit more of the leaflets, which may be useful in flail. Um, what other technology is, is out there? And <laughs> I remember the good old days. Do you remember that hundredth? Uh, that seems like a, such a faraway milestone. I think that was a tweet. We've done, I remember those good days. We've done, we've done several hundred now as a team, and uh, it continues to grow. And I guess a thousand is the next kind of milestone for that. But the 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 clip technology is changing. It's changing for the better. Um, right now, we have four different types of clip we can use in this new system called the G4. NT means is a shorter one, and XT is the larger one. And then you have NTW or XTW, which means larger and wider. So the wider clips allowing us to catch more tissue, potentially improving durability, potentially decreasing the number of clips. And we are actually data is coming out on that in the next. In the next month or two, we just finished working on uh, publications to that effect with the G4 working group. And um, I think it's been a great, great advance in technology. You can do independent grippers. So you can do the anterior one first and then catch the posterior one after that. It certainly allows for an increase in complexity of what can be done. Um, And then these uh, registries that are coming out will demonstrate the safety and efficacy of those. But having been involved in, you know, amongst the very first implants of those, in the United States, actually in the world, uh, we've been impressed from minute one with with how they're going, and it seems set that they're going to become the gold standard uh, going forward. So, so have definitely been impressed with that. Um, what about the uh, clasp versus the clip? Do we? Yes, 
So CLASP is the name of a trial. Um, what's the device? It's called a Pascal device. Pascal device. And this yeah. is um, done by, you know, it's, it's never a bad thing to continue to have increasing technologies available. Uh, like with every other technology, you know, for that trials are ongoing right now um, to look at the safety, efficacy and results that can be achieved. And in a few years, hopefully when those trials are complete, we'll find out if we have, you know, more than one technology available uh, you know, I'm not as familiar with that, but um, once the once the data is collected and shown, uh, we'll find out what the different types of clips and what can be used best in which situation. Um, hopefully, within a few years, we'll have the results of those. Be great. Well, Mustafa, thank you again. That was a very comprehensive review of the data on the mitral clip for mitral insufficiency. Such an interesting topic. Um, you know, and next podcast we'd like to discuss maybe more the surgical aspect of um, repairing uh, or replacing a mitral valve um, when it's leaking severely. And also we want to expand a little bit on the secondary mitral insufficiency because the medical therapy or maximal medical therapy um, has changed quite a bit, has evolved. And, um, you know, I think we have to be um, really mindful that the clip is really given in addition or in combination with the medical therapy. So I think it would be good to reconvene and discuss specifically, you know, the context of uh, secondary mitral insufficiency when the left ventricle is sick and large. How can we help best with medical therapy sometimes combined with CLIP? Another topic for a future podcast. And, you know, one thing in the future we, we can discuss is also um, the transcatheter mitral valve replacements. Uh, those are really coming into the fall. We've got got a good bit of experience with those now, and it's a uh, each each step is mind blowing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, okay. I've never. It's uh, amazing how fast. I mean, technology is progressing at a much faster pace than we can actually keep up with in terms of evidence operator experience. I mean, it seems like someone's trying something new every day, new company. You know, it's really good for the field of valve disease. For the longest time, like you said, this has been exponentially growing with the aging population. It's a public health issue. The options have been minimal over time, and it will be great, you know, in the next 10, 20 years where we just have a fluid number of multiple treatments where, where valve disease can be taken off the table as a risk factor. This wonderful future is bright. It makes me feel better as I'm getting older with my mitral valve prolapse. I'm going to have still, so many you're options. Still a low risk, you're still a very low-risk candidate. <laughs> still open surgery for you, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, thank you, Mustafa. We'll, we'll talk to you in our next podcast. Hi. Thanks. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.